ministry. What a blessing to be able to sing like that. And there's more to come, of course, this next weekend as we head into this great festive week and season. So take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we've been studying in this wonderful section in the Lord's dealing with His people. I was thinking about what Dan said a moment ago, that that there on that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem, there was this crowd, and on the one hand, they were laying down all these gestures, palm branches, and hailing Him as the King, the coming Messiah. And a week later, an entire crowd, who knows the number of them that had been on the hillside laying down palm branches a week earlier, an entire crowd calling for His death. What is it that, that jars the human heart to such a degree that it can't see its own hypocrisy and own fickleness like that? What is it about the human heart that wants to insert itself in evaluating who Jesus is and why He came and whether or not it's reasonable that He came the way He came and why it is that there are questions that as human dilemmas, God solves them, but we can't accept that. Why is this? What is it in the human heart that inserts humanity into the middle of the equation? Well, this is, of course, what we're warned about all throughout Scripture and in some key places, even the text before us this morning. We're warned about that very reality that God has a program and He has ordained that program and because He is God, He alone is sovereign over that program for the expression of His perfections in mercy and grace upon undeserving sinners and all of us fit that category. And in doing so, there is always the tendency for God to be put on trial in the human heart that if all dilemmas cannot be answered, that if all questions cannot be solved to the human being's satisfaction, that if Jesus didn't come as some had expected, if He wasn't the Messiah or the ruler they wanted, if He didn't come letting people live on their own terms before God, then somehow He's unacceptable. Somehow the truth is unacceptable. Somehow, it, if it doesn't fit my intellect it is to be rejected. That is the plague of the human heart. By the way, you remember last week, it's what Jesus warned the disciples about when they came back and they were rejoicing that, that God was and indeed had empowered them to speak the gospel and be a polarizing influence. And even the demons were responding. The kingdom of darkness was responding. But the tendency, though it was great to rejoice over kingdom purposes, the tendency was for the human being to insert themselves into the middle of the equation as if it were about them. And Jesus had to caution the 70 not drifting away from what's really important. You remember that he had sent them out. They came back with all this excitement. Verse 17 even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's true. They did it right. They went out. They, they had this ministry of grace and culpability. 
They went all along the Transjordan in very paganized villages and darkness and bondage and even demonic activity all through that land. And they went out on behalf of the gospel. And they went out by twos and every village they went into, they were to find places where the gospel was received and welcomed and they were to note places where the gospel was rejected and they were drawing lines in the sand. You're welcoming the gospel, then we'll make your house a, a staging point for the gospel and it'll be a ministry and message of grace as God saves his people in these dark places. But if we come into your town or your village and you reject it, there's going to be a formal declaration that Jesus had planned to come this way, but he's not coming by your village to bring his grace and his mercy because you've rejected it. And if you've reject, rejected the disciples, then you've rejected Christ and therefore you've rejected the Father. It was polarizing. There was grace and there was culpability. And when they went out, everything happened as Jesus had said. People believed. People rejected. The soil was softened. The soil was hardened. And demons responded. And Satan's kingdom of darkness responded. This was shocking to them. Especially in light of the fact that we saw last time that even the 12 disciples, the closest inner circle of Jesus, at one point had sort of become weak in their faith and could not deal at times with the forces of darkness. Here the 70 went out and they're coming back and saying, this is unreal. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Satan was humiliated, we saw last time. Jesus says, I watched the kingdom of Satan begin to topple again and to topple over and over again as God the Father is accomplishing his great purposes and some are being saved and everyone they wanted to hold in bondage was powerless against the mercy of God that bursts into a heart. And Satan just was toppling to the earth like lightning from his place in the heavenlies, his supernatural places of authority. It was just being stripped from him. Demons are responding. Satan is humiliated. This is just euphoric. And no one's going to injure you, Jesus said. No one's going to injure you. He didn't mean physically. Clearly later, they, many of them may have been martyred. What he means is nothing is going to stop this power of the gospel through you as an instrument over the enemy. You're going to make a kingdom dent. But, verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I see you rejoicing, but nevertheless, I don't want you to rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't insert yourself into there, into the equation. Don't do that. Don't imagine that it's a horizontal framework and that you've got to watch at what's going on horizontally and you're sudden, somehow in the, in the middle of it as some sort of factor. You've got to rejoice in the work that God is doing, not in some reference to yourself. Sure, you want to be used as an instrument, but your eyes have to get off yourself. You ought to already be rejoicing that you're not one of the hardened ones. It's like Spurgeon was robbed one time and somebody asked him, aren't you glad that you, know, you didn't get killed? And he said, no, I'm just glad I wasn't the robber. That's right. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying you need to rejoice that you're not one of those held in bondage in a village against which Jesus then says, I'm not coming because I'm judging you. I want you to rejoice, he says, 
not in delusions of grandeur in your own life, but in the sovereign grace of God. Notice, but rejoice, verse 20, that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that before time began, God wrote your name in the book of life. Rejoice that you have had your eyes open. Rejoice that God has not judiciously and rightly left you in your sin. Rejoice in that. Because he could rightly do it. Again, we'll just open up the classroom and I'll ask you again. If God saves no one, is he just? Come on, class. Of course. Why? We're all born by nature sinners. If God saves no one, he is absolutely just. God is a saving God. He wants to manifest his mercy and his love upon undeserving sinners. And so he saves. And Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're getting caught up in these little moments of, of sort of a human's ability on behalf of Jesus to speak Jesus' name and a demon flees. You need to get caught up in something far greater, far more eternal, and that is the sovereign grace of God that has opened your eyes because he didn't have to. He is that sovereign. He's that right. He's that just. You have nothing to say, no arguments. And so he, he talks about their ministry euphoria here and then what is recorded is their, the examination of their motives and then you have this wonderful moment where the master himself becomes an example of what you rejoice over. The master himself by the Spirit's filling becomes an example, a model of His people and for His people on what really to rejoice over. And that's what we have here in 21 and following. Their Master's example. Notice verse 21. At that very time, He rejoiced greatly. Now you just, just hold on a minute here. Think about it. Jesus had just called His disciples to guard their motives from high-mindedness, from smallish thinking, from temporal concerns, from horizontal perspectives rather than eternal perspectives and vertical realities. He refocused their spiritual eyesight on eternal realities. He called them to be consumed with the joy over the truth that before the universe was created, God had written their name in the heavenlies in the book of the redeemed. And just having noted now their joy and called them to a joy in the sovereign grace of God, Jesus now openly models in a, in a spontaneous expression of joy, a joyful confession of his own heart conviction of what it means to properly ascribe honor to the sovereign God of the universe. He, he just explodes in this exuberant confession right in front of the disciples. It is... To some degree spontaneous, you notice it says it at that very time in some of your translations. Literally, this could read within the hour, within that very hour. It's interesting, Matthew 11, the parallel text, just says at that occasion or on that occasion. Other times, Matthew will use that phrase, on this occasion. He's not, he's not narrowing it down to a particular hour or some minutes within an hour, but Luke is doing that here. The reason Matthew didn't say that is because Matthew leaves the sending and the returning of the 70 out of his gospel record completely. And you know, he, he records that Jesus said, hey, 
Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Same things we saw earlier in this chapter that Luke records. And then Matthew goes right into these statements. So he's just saying at a particular occasion this happened. Luke takes it and narrows it right down and says, within the hour in which he had said to them, I'm warning you, you need to rejoice about the right things. It's at that particular time that this outburst becomes very, very important because it's a response to the 70 returning and giving their testimony. It's a response to what happened. God hardened some and softened others. God elevated His glory in the squelching of the truth to the proud and He offered it and opened the eyes of those who'd been crushed by life and whose heart and soil was softened by God. Jesus was responding the testimonies of what actually happened and it became it became in him this passionate delight he greatly rejoiced this is the same verb by the way that is used when mary says after being told she's going to have the messiah i exceedingly rejoice in god my savior it's the same thing that Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8 when he says, though you don't see the Lord, yet you love Him. And though you don't see Him now, you rejoice exceedingly with some sort of indescribable expressions of joy. You know how that is. Sometimes we're in sorrow and pain and we don't feel any emotional joy at all, but through it all and coming out the other side by the Lord's kindness, there is this undercurrent that's so steadying, so full of peace that your tears turn to tears tears of settledness and love and joy for Christ and you cannot describe it to those that don't know him. It is not possible to help them understand with human words what it is that you just experienced through the difficulties of life. That's this word. And so when Jesus, the Son of God, thinks about his Father and the work that just went on in one of the darkest places in the Transjordan area, full of demonic bondage, when he thinks about what happened, his mind is not on temporal things. His mind is not on just merely the fact that the kingdom of darkness was being toppled. His mind is on the proper honor that goes to the Father for this Father's sovereign work. And notice that he, he was rejoicing exceedingly in the Holy Spirit. I, just, I have to say something about this because of what Jesus is about to say. Look, some scholars, by the way, say that the word in is not in here. Well, it doesn't really matter because when you put the time reference within that very hour, combine that with this formal expression of God spoken by Jesus to his Father, you know that the Spirit produced this moment for a specific purpose. He is sending us a very specific message. I want you to rejoice like this. I want you to rejoice about these things. I want these things to be on your mind and nothing else. Nothing else elevates above these things. This is a statement by Jesus so packed with theology that it's crucial for God's people on an everyday practical level. It is theological truth about the Father's sovereign purposes which are carried out in every city and village in every single response to the gospel taking place every day, not only just with the 70 evangelists, but in every privileged gospel encounter we ever have or ever pray for or ever experience in our practical life as Christians. 
So this becomes an example of what we truly ought to be rejoicing about in our lives as believers when we think about what God is ultimately doing, whether God is hardening or softening, whether he's saving and redeeming or whether he is judging. It's an example of the truths we ought to confess and live and die for. These are our convictions. I'll also add that this is an example of what happens to your mind and heart when you submit yourself to the filling of the Spirit, to the control of the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you yield to the Spirit in humble faith, you begin to have what Jesus experiences here, a settled, discerning, very truth-filled mind and heart that expresses itself about right theology and doesn't argue with things that you're not meant to know or understand. Anytime someone argues with God's word and its straightforward message, I know that if they are a believer, they are at this point not at their strongest moment. When you're at your strongest moment, it's when the Spirit of God is filling your mouth and your mind and truth is being spoken in straightforward manner and you're humbled by it. Even your pride crushed by it. And it produces love for the Father and honor to Christ. Notice one more detail in verse 21. Some of your translations say, I praise you, O Father. Some of your translations say, I thank you, O Father. The older translations, however, say, I confess, O Father. You've heard me refer to this as a confession. Which is the best rendering? Well, it's interesting. The word here is not the word for praise, the normal word for praise, and it's not the normal word for thanksgiving or thanks. The word is the normal New Testament word for confession. Confession. It's a normal word that means to agree or acknowledge the same, to acknowledge something as the same as you've just heard it, to confess it as the same, to speak agreement. But more than that, there's even a prefix added to this verb which takes the force of this word to a whole different level. It's not merely, I thank you, Father, or I praise you, Father. It should have probably been translated, I openly confess these things to your honor. In other words, so that you'll be honored, I openly align myself with these truths. I align my heart, my mind, I rejoice in them, I absolutely give myself completely to them so that you're properly honored. That's the force of this verb. That is so, so important, beloved, because Jesus was not merely praising his Father because he's worthy to be praised, but he is openly confessing truths that he himself is aligned with in order that those truths are openly honored and worshipped because they come from the God who is worthy of our worship. He is openly confessing these truths that he's aligned himself with in order that God himself will be openly honored as he ought to be honored because these truths are from God. They are about God. He's worthy of honor because these things are spoken and revealed and true about him.
You say, why is that important? Because, beloved, listen, you're not going to always understand everything that you read in Scripture, let alone your flesh respond willingly to it. But whenever you want to throw up arguments about the way God works, why He does what He does, how He does what He does, you must come by the Spirit's filling underneath that truth and align with it, or you'll never see it rightly. Never. Why is the church so afraid to speak on issues of homosexuality and moral perversion? Because we're not walking in the Spirit and upholding what the truth of the Scriptures say about those issues. Why are we so nervous about speaking the truth about marriage and healthy homes in a community? Why do we not want to speak to the moral issues of the conscience as an evangelical movement? Because we're not walking in the Spirit and rejoicing in the truth aligned with it the way Jesus is here. We're not confessing it to the honor of God as it ought to be confessed. And so what's the net effect? You get afraid? You get murky? You lose discernment? courage, these things aren't your convictions, suddenly somebody comes along and starts by, by consensus and by human wisdom introducing other ideas and all of a sudden we don't even see the gospel right. We don't even see God's sovereign righteousness correctly. We don't even see a passage like this that tells us that God is sovereign in these things. We don't even see that as fair. I'm not asking you to ignore all the passages of Scripture or some of the passages of Scripture. I'm telling you to be fearless in coming to the Scriptures because Jesus, what He says here, He says by the power of the Spirit and He aligns Himself confessionally with these truths. And every time we're at our best and our most Spirit-filled moment, that's what our heart does with the truth. What happens to my praise when the things that God has ordained go beyond my understanding or my sense of what ought to be, what happens to my praise in that moment? It ought to be this. What happens when God's unfolding purposes collide with my view of how things ought to be? I am to align myself by the Spirit's power with these truths. That's why we don't shy away from truths of Scripture that seem offensive or have tension in them. We don't shy away from them. Because as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, we have received the Spirit that is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Think about that. The, the apostles who were inspired to write the New Covenant Scriptures, to, to go with the Old Testament Scriptures, inspired through the prophets by the same Spirit, all of that was given to us from the Spirit who is from God so that we might know all the things freely given to us by God. And so Paul says, these are the things we speak and they're not in words taught by human wisdom but in those taught by the Spirit so that we can evaluate and interpret the spiritual with the spiritual. That's right. We're no longer thinking like the natural people we used to be. So if you come across teachings in Scripture that at first glance bring tension into your heart and mind, the more you're filled with the Spirit and humble faith and submission, the more you're going to confess that truth as perfect and right and good, and you're going to speak that truth without reservation. And Jesus speaks these words, I confess these things to your honor, O God. He speaks that in the power of the Spirit because He's declaring that the Father's purposes are are absolutely worthy of supreme honor. 
and he's aligned with them. Is that what our praise is made of? I mean, there's the question. Is that what your praise and my praise is made of? Is our praise a confession? Is our praise an acknowledgement of God's perfect will? When we praise God, even in song or even to one another or even just to tell of His works that He's done in our lives, is it an aligning of our hearts and minds with what God loves and what His sovereign will ordains or is it a little bit of what God says and a little bit of mix in of what, what is comfortable for us to think about? Amazing to me that the entire Godhead is here. You have the Son by the filling of the Spirit honoring the Father. The whole Godhead is involved in what is being confessed here. So what does Jesus confess in his joy? Very quickly, four things. What does he confess in his joy? He confesses four things. The first comes by a title. We'll call it his Father's Supreme Rule. His Father's supreme rule. I, I confess to your honor, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So by a title put in the, the opening of his expression, he is confessing his Father's supreme rule. Why is Jesus doing this? Listen, he's about to mention the wisdom and intelligence of humanity. He's about to mention human beings who have gotten to the place where they actually think what they know in philosophy and in logic and in human morality that they know better than God or they have understood the universe better than God. And since he's about to mention human intellect and wisdom, he mentions here first that Jesus is honoring the Father for his supreme rule. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Let's just spread the implications out for a little bit. Number one, that means his universe is in his hands as sole creator. He can do with it what he wants. You think it's unfair that when mankind fell in the garden that God then took the earth and all the planets and the universe and subjected it to a futile way of life? You think that was fair to the creation? In fact, Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning and longing for our redemption so that it can be renewed and have the curse reversed. But the earth didn't do anything. Adam and Eve did it. You think it was fair? Listen, this is God's universe to do with as he pleases. He is creator. It's in his hands. That's what Jesus is, at least at first, declaring here. The creator owns it. That means, listen, beloved, he owns the moral aspect of it. God is a moral being and everything in his, in his universe reflects him and his perfections and mankind and the angelic world are moral beings because mankind bears the image of God and therefore is moral and there will be moral consequences to the angelic creatures, some fallen, some holy for eternity. The moral aspect of his universe is in his hands because it was created by him and no creature then should ever question God's moral judgments because he's Lord of all moral judgments. No human being has a higher framework from which to operate and under which God then is scrutinized. Furthermore, God himself, being Lord, is therefore sovereign and authoritative and supreme and he is 
perfect and holy, as we know from other perfections listed in Scripture. He is perfectly righteous, and He's unchanging in all of that. So, none of what He has created could ever legitimately bring an accusation against God that He was somehow unrighteous or unjust or in some way was flawed in His moral nature. Those are the implications of a statement that Jesus makes when he says, I, to your honor, confess these things, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That means he's Lord of all wisdom, he's Lord of all knowledge, comprehensively, perfectly, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, almighty. And if that's true, if he's Lord of heaven and earth, that means every creature is accountable to him. And listen, not the other way around. Never the other way around, which is the fundamental problem Jesus is going to point out in this next confession. He confesses joyfully that his, father's, his father is the supreme ruler and he confesses, secondly, his father's opposition to the proud his opposition to the proud. I thank you to your honor, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. Now this introduces tension for us because our minds are puny. I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. We're not only finite, but we're tainted with the noetic effects of the fall. We're sinful. We recoil at such ideas that God is so sovereign that everyone should be judged. We recoil at that idea. And even when earlier, as I asked you if he is just, if he saves no one, and you said yes, some of you said it timidly. Some of you said it compelled to say it. Some of you said it because you know it's true, but in your flesh it is tension. That's right. Because for God to be that sovereign... That means he didn't have to save you and me. And the fact is, we could not have been saved had God not fixed his heart upon people mercifully. You say, does God hide the truth? Well, it says it right here. Jesus is actually rejoicing that the Father is opposed to the wise and intelligent and he conceals truth from this resistance this exaltation of human wisdom conceals. Apocrypto. It's, it's just a word that means he, he conceals it. He veils it. He hides it. Keeps it from them. What are these things here? This is the will of God and the unfolding of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. He hides it from them. He keeps their eyes closed. The fact that some people receive the truth down along the Transjordan in a very darkened place and some people received the missionaries and therefore were receiving Christ and then welcoming the Father and others were closed off and Jesus says, look, I'm judging them. I'm shutting them out of the truth. Why? Because in the rebellion of their hearts, I'm going to leave them in it as a justice, as a judicious response. I'm hiding it from them. Gospel truth, redemption in Christ. Spiritual blindness giving way to spiritual sight. These things are hidden from those who have come to the place where they resist the truth in the exaltation of themselves. 
You see, isn't that a description of everyone? Yes. But it's true that some, some, all their life, the earth becomes all about them. Their intellect becomes all about them. Their achievements become all about them. And their resistance to anything that should soften their heart. Life's troubles, the emptiness of money and power and fame and, and earthly life, the emptiness of, of the drudgery of life without Christ, the, the life and death questions that never get answered, the threshold beyond death that you can never go, all of the philosophical dilemmas that are put before us and the scientific dilemmas that seemingly can't be solved and are just endlessly dredged up, that should soften someone. As they look at the creation around them, they should see. If they, as they look at themselves, they should see. There is, there must be, there has to be a God to whom we are accountable and I want to know the light so that I'm not left in the empty darkness that has been my existence. But some imagine in their own self-sufficiency that they are their own God. That if there is a God, He should answer them on their terms. And that if there were a God, He would have already answered them on their terms, and therefore it's more and more proof that He isn't as powerful as some claim, if He exists at all, and He's certainly not as intelligent as they are, having figured out why it is He's not who He says He is. The gospel reaches some and their hearts have become increasingly resistant to the truth because they think of themselves, first of all, as sophos, as wise and, and intelligent, sunitas, the good natural sense enough to make my own way. The first word is, I am, I am supremely wise enough to be the captain of my own destiny and answer all the questions of life on my own the actualization of human intellect. And the other word just means, you know what? I'm good enough. I'm actually, in human nature is good enough to do this on its own. Obviously, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were in his mind to some degree. I mean, they would be the prime culprits of this type of arrogance against God and his son. You remember the blind man in John 9? We've, we've studied it before. Jesus heals him and they talk later in the, in the temple mount and Jesus is saying to him while the Pharisees are sort of gathering around having found now uh, Jesus, the blind man is talking to him and they're crowding around sort of listening in because they would love an opportunity to take Jesus to the, to the, behind the woodshed and take his life and the blind man is asking about spiritual blindness and, and healing. Are you the Messiah? I believe. And Jesus is talking to him about healing him spiritually. Look, I've healed you physically. I've opened your eyes. But that's just proof that I am who I say I am because I have power from God. I'm telling you I can heal your spiritual blindness. I, by God's sovereign purposes, can reveal the Father to you by taking the spiritual scales off your eyes. No human being can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And as he's standing there, what do the Pharisees say? In John 9, 40 and 41, what do they say? So, you're not suggesting that we're blind too, are you? Wow. So what are you saying, Jesus? That in our religious 
practices in the law of God that God himself, the Father, doesn't accept us because you say that? I mean, who are you? Who do you think you are declaring that men have to come through you to get their eyes spiritually open? And Jesus said, well, because you say we already see, your sin remains. If you were blind, I mean, if you saw your spiritual blindness, you'd have no sin. In other words, if you came to me saying, I'm blind, I need your light, I'd forgive you, you'd have no sin to stand for. But because you say you already see in your own wisdom, your own intellect, your sin remains. Paul himself knew that sin, Romans 10, 1 to 3, talked about his brethren. He said, My heart's desire and prayer for them is for their salvation. For I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God. I mean, these guys go after the law as if it's the most righteous way to live and they want to honor the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But instead of thinking that God's righteousness has to come through the Messiah and only the sacrifice of God's Messiah, they establish their own righteousness. They seek to make themselves good enough. And Paul said, listen, I was like that. Philippians 3, 3, we are the true circumcision to put no confidence in the flesh. But if you're talking about my background, that's all I ever did. I was a Hebrew. I was, I was a law keeper. Man, I was after it passionately. I had religious training. I could crank up my own righteousness and offer it before God. But he said in verse 8 of Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all of that and I count it as human waste so that I might have Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 very quickly. 1 Corinthians 1. You, you have to put your eyes on this text. It's so, so critical. Same words are used here, the wise and the intelligent. And it's a quote from the parallel terms in the Hebrew from the Old Testament, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 1. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He's talking about high philosophical questions, dilemmas that haven't been answered to people's satisfaction. So they say, I don't believe in God. I'm a physicist. I know science. I don't believe in God. I saw this week on Twitter a woman just outright declaring during the uh, debate over the, the, the Supreme Court justice nominee and, and approval and affirmation, just right on Twitter, there is no God. I thought, wow. If she's, in, if she's past her 20s, I'd be shocked. But how much life could she have lived? Even if she'd lived 50, 60, 70 years of life and tweeted that out. How much of the universe has she traversed? How much of the earth has she traversed? How many questions has she plumbed the depths of? How many mysteries has she solved? No, you see what's happened there? Human self-sufficiency, self-exaltation, intelligence, wisdom has said, you haven't answered my philosophical dilemmas, you haven't shown me signs that are satisfactory to me, and by the way, you've not accepted me for who I am. You're telling me I've got to come to a Savior and i got to admit all these things? Absolutely out of the question. 
Where is the wise and the scribe and the debater? Verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I love that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when talking about what happened in our ability to process the truth as a strong evangelical church, he said the whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. Yeah, if you can't solve my logical and philosophical questions and dilemmas, I've got no time for you. God is on trial, not me. John Calvin spoke of the gift of intellectual wisdom and said, look, it's a great thing. It's a great gift from God. But he gave these poignant words about this great gift of knowledge. He said, the liberal arts and all the sciences by which wisdom is acquired, they are gifts of God. They are confined, however, within their own limits, for into God's heavenly kingdom they cannot penetrate. Hence they must occupy the place, he said, of handmaid, not mistress. Moreover, they must be looked upon as empty and worthless until they become entirely subject to the Word and the Spirit of God. If, on the other hand, these gifts of knowledge and intellect, if, on the other hand, they set themselves in opposition to Christ, they must be looked upon as dangerous, and if they strive to accomplish anything of themselves, they must be looked upon as the worst of all hindrances." End quote. That's right. Beloved, God conceals the truth as He wills, as He ordains, and He can leave men and women where He leaves them, and they will continue to resist in their folly. God is opposed to the pride of the human heart. I love what Spurgeon said about knowledge. He said, My master has riches beyond the count of arithmetic, the measurement of reason, the dream of imagination, or the eloquence of words. His riches are unsearchable. End quote. Yeah. But Jesus is also rejoicing. These come very quickly with his Father's grace to the humble. I praise you, O Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's an interesting term. It just means, figuratively speaking, he's not talking about babies. He's talking about the figurative idea of a, of a childlike, unspoiled heart. Not without sin. We're all born into sin. But someone who, in their growing up, is in wide-eyed wonder of all that they see and seeks to know the God that, that clearly is represented by what you see, or as they grow, life's trials and difficulties teach them to reach to God. Their heart gets softened. Their soil gets tilled. They become someone who's been brought low by the emptiness of life apart from Christ. God loves to soften hearts and draw them He's sovereign in it. He's the one that grants repentance and faith. The scriptures are clear about that. But from a human perspective, there is this softening that should take place. I mean, I think about that. How can somebody live all their life having all the things that life has to offer and not see that it's empty and have that emptiness then soften their heart toward what they ought to see? 
I mean, it just makes no sense to me. I mean, it made sense to Solomon, right? He tried it all with the power of an empirical kingdom, and he said at the end, it is just wind. It's chasing wind. I've had it all. A kingdom, the ruling of the world, empires, and everything at my disposal from knowledge all the way down to the cheapest pleasures. I've had it all, done it all, and I've set out to experiment with it to see if it would satisfy. And in the end, it's nothing. I mean, life ought to teach these lessons. Life ought to till the soil. Life ought to soften the human heart from the human perspective. So Jesus confesses his Father's supreme rule, his opposition to the proud, and his grace upon the humble. God is saving. As those evangelists came down through that dark country, people got saved. It's just, it's just incredible. And isn't that just like God? Sometimes you will think you have someone there. You've argued everything you could argue. You've opened the Bible. You've talked. And they're starting to show some signs. And you are just seeing it. And you're getting all excited. And you see, man, my evangelism's working. I took that evangelism class at church. I'm really cranking it out. My answers are really clear. And they're coming. This is good. And then they, they reject. And you never see them again. Has that ever happened? You're like, What? And then someone you don't spend even a moment with, they come up to you and they say, I've been watching you. Why are you so different? Can you tell me what you're diff- what's different in your life? And you tell them, and they're saved within minutes. And you're like, what? I didn't spend any time. I fumbled around my answers. Didn't even know where to go into the scriptures. I should have taken that class. <laughs> and God saves them. And what happens to you in that moment? Your jaw is dropped. You're just saying this is absolutely staggering the way God works. And Jesus is saying that's right. That God saves anyone is as rich as it can be. And God in his righteous sovereign hand sometimes hardens. And when he does, it is cause for rejoicing. It is cause for honoring God for his sovereign justice. It is cause for honoring God in his expressed mercy. And it is, as Jesus confesses here, his Father's flawless pleasure. There it is. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. There's the fourth confession. His Father's flawless, impeccable, irreproachable pleasure. It, in this way, it was well-pleasing in your sight. Why? Because God wants no one to boast. He wants to do what's counterintuitive. He wants to do what, what sends your mouth to the floor. He wants you to say of that person, I got in the way, but God saved him anyway. And he wants you to say to that other person, you know, that person rejected, oh God, and I was on my best game. And it isn't about me. You do what you do for your purposes. I argue with none of it. You know why that's important? So that when you go home and you look in the mirror, your mouth is on the floor that God could have even wanted to fix his love on such a pathetic sinner like you and me. You weren't saved because you thought about it long enough, assessed it, and in the intelligence and wisdom of your own life, you made it happen. That is impossible, even if you were religious. It's impossible, beloved. In fact... 
We'll close with this. Verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. Wow. The Father knows the Son. No one else does. And who the Father is except the Son. No one will know the Father because only the Son has access to the Father. So the Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. No one else is in that circle by the Spirit's power. And I love this last line, verse 22, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Oh, we're in. <laughs> we're in. Because the Son, by some bizarre, wonderful ministry of mercy, willed to bring us in. And He's willing to bring many more in, He says. And our job is to rejoice and to confess these things and align with them and thank God for them and tell every single person, look, you can't know the Father unless you know the Son and you can't know the Son and unless you come by His terms and ask Him and plead with Him for mercy. You must come. And when they come and God grants them repentance and faith, it's just like it is with you and me. They are on the other side of that beginning to realize it was God working all along in every detail, willing to reveal. That's a joyful declaration of the Son's Lordship. Our time is gone. We didn't finish. So we're going to have to stop there. You're not surprised. I mean, it's humbling, isn't it? It's just so humbling that the Lord rejoices like this over these kinds of things. That's what he meant to the disciples. Don't get caught up in some earthly temporal idea. And if, if it's tension that you'd like to relieve when you read the scriptures, just ask the Spirit to give you grace to see it for what it is. Don't, don't argue with it. Don't set up your logical arguments against it. Jesus didn't. That's why I believe it says he rejoiced greatly because he was trying to say to us, look, if you really want to set your joy on the highest place, align yourself with what the scriptures teach. Be humbled in the reality that he, can, he conceals the truth from some and he reveals it to others and he reveals it from both sides. He, he can do that. He can do that judiciously. He certainly does it sovereignly and he doesn't have to save anyone but he saves some and and you know what, beloved? You look at that and you got swept up in his wonderful plan to write your name before the foundation of the earth. You say, well, what about my unsaved friends and loved ones? Don't make it a sentimental thing. Make it a passionate gospel thing. Don't turn it into some comfort that says if you get to eternity and people you loved and people you knew rejected the gospel that somehow God was unfair. Don't do that. Don't make it about that. If they still have breath in their lungs, tell them about the Son. And leave the, the powerful, sovereign wonders to God as he describes them in Scripture. I've said to you, it's a wall at the base of which you must worship if you're afraid to come all the way up to the wall, your theology isn't going to be full of the kind of rejoicing Jesus shows here. And if you try to go over the wall and plunge into mysteries God hasn't explained, you're in trouble. When we hit the wall of Scripture, coming right up to it, we are compelled to worship. Let's bow. 
and thank God. Our great God, this is humbling. So humbling. There are many places in Scripture where we look at gospel ministry from the human side of it and our culpability and our need to share Christ and our need to witness and give testimony and even to persuade with Scripture to plead with men be reconciled to you. And then there are all these wonderful places in Scripture where your sovereign work it's inescapable and in our own wisdom we, we trip up, we get afraid, we get confused, humble us. Lord, we can't even fathom how and for what end and purpose knowing that we would be born corrupt and in a fallen world, why it is you would fix your love upon us before the foundation of the world and record our names by name. I, I, there's just no way to understand that. And yet that's what you've said. That's what you've told us. And that's to be the basis of our joy. And so we confess what Jesus confesses about you, O oh God, that you're Lord of heaven and earth, that you justly conceal these things from the proud, that you mercifully reveal them to the humble. And this is the, the flawless pleasure of a sovereign God that can never be challenged, never put on trial, except to man's harm and peril. So help us as a church to embrace these things and may it inform our worship and our theology and may it make us passionate gospel testimonies for the lost because you are saving and you promise to save and you command us to go out so that we might be instruments in your hands for your sovereign work. May we not be afraid to rejoice with the truth as it's straightforward given by you. Thank you for never shying away from telling your people what we need to hear. For you're a bold God, a precise God, a truth-filled God. Your truth itself. And we can come to you with not only humility, but confidence, settledness. Lord, if there's someone here today and they just are lost, this is divine appointment time. To whatever your purpose is, may they soften. In your mercy, grant them a soft heart. And we plead with them to be reconciled with you, to repent of self-exaltation, of putting you on trial, of exalting their own wisdom. Make them soft in your mercy. We pray for your glory's sake and the honor of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.